you have been in our missions conference the past two days. Uh, you've gotten the opportunity to get to know Stephanie and Noah and the joiners uh, a bunch more. And most of you all know that we have had the privilege for, I think, four years now. We've known each other. And three years, we've been taking trips to Dominican Republic and to work among the Haitians there. And uh, this is the first opportunity that we've gotten to bring them up here. And, and by God's grace, they've come and their whole family, all six of them, uh, six kids that is, eight of them, I guess, total. Uh, and uh, 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 God has been good in all of that. And um, So I just want to, I'm going to pray for Noah. I'm going to ask, ask him to come up. I just want to pray for him as he preaches the word for us this morning. So you want to? Father, thank you for uh, this opportunity to, to uh, hear your word from a brother who, who loves you, Father, and who has him and his family and led his family to, to give their, their lives to you. And Father, I pray that uh, our hearts would, would be soft and malleable this morning, that we would, that we would have hearts that are tender to hear your word and and hearts that are ready to receive and be changed. And, and Father, I pray that you give Noah the words to say and from your word. And, and uh, Father, just ask your blessing on him in this time. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. So most of the time when you have someone kind of speaking at a missions conference, many times... You, They'll speak from missions passages on a Sunday morning, Matthew 28, Revelation 5, etc. Um, this morning, we're going to be in Philippians 2. Now, if you've read Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11 before, uh, you know that it's not necessarily a missions passage. Uh, but it is a passage that will orient you to missions because it's a, it's a passage concerning humility and corporate unity. And if you do not have personal humility and corporate unity within this body, missions, mission, God's global mission and God's local mission will not happen. And so uh, what I'm uh, endeavoring to do this morning is to take a step back and to, to lay uh, firmly and to, to help us all assess what the foundation of mission, global and local, looks like here in terms of personal humility that leads to corporate unity. But first of all, I want to start by letting you know that I am a professional. Uh, I'm really good at this. I've been at this for years, and I'm really better at this than anyone that you've ever met. Uh, uh, the more time you spend knowing me, uh, the more you will realize how good I am at this. In fact, I've never met anyone in the world better at this than I am. And my family has been doing this for generations, and I am the culmination of that heritage. I'm not speaking about preaching, but I'm speaking about pride. I'm, I'm really a pro at this, and, and you can ask my wife. She will She'll let you know that. I'm a dreadfully prideful man in the process of sanctification. I need this sermon more than anyone in this room. In my experience and study, there is no sharper axe in Scripture that one can lay to the root of pride and self than Philippians 2. So my aim this morning is to, to pull back the dirt that has been covering this root within us so that the Spirit would hack away at each of us and the stubborn self that remains. I think that this struggle, this is a struggle for most, if not all of us. Self-importance and arrogance are the two crowning jewels of American culture, and we stew in these juices every day. We steep in the encouragement to express all of our opinions and thoughts through social media and blogs, and we're trained to think that self-expression is the essence of existence. 
Self-expression is, is how we exist. It's who we are. And the church is no exception to this cultural norm. Popular Christian music is often about what one thinks of God rather than what God thinks of himself. Or what one will do for God rather than what God has done in us and for us. Christian bookshops offer and sell all kinds of volumes about how to become a better you. Because after all, you are most important. For Americans, humility is a break from culture. Yet our pride problem is not simply cultural. It's who we are as humans. Sin and rebellion against God is self-centeredness expressed. I think, uh, I'm tempted to think that my thoughts are more important than his thoughts. The fact is this. This sermon will not make you humble. It will not make me humble. I've preached this sermon before, and it didn't do the trick. I'm still endeavoring in humility. I've spent over three decades getting good at pride and getting even better at hiding it from you. But I... But it can be broken if the Spirit is willing. And the Spirit is willing. He's willing to break it in you. He's willing to break it in me. And so we're dependent on the Spirit. He can soften you if He desires. It can be redirected and corrected in you by God's grace. There is hope for us in the midst of pride. The lack of humility. It can be the beginning of a long pursuit of personal humility. And so let's beg God. Let's beg him to do this in us by his word. And so we'll do that through prayer now. Pray with me. Listen to what I'm praying and pray these words in agreement with me. Father, we know that you oppose the proud and give grace to the humble. We know that a haughty spirit goes before destruction. We know that we follow a humble king. Make us humble subjects of yours. Begin and complete an all-consuming work in us for your glory, by your word, through the Spirit. I'm in a season, uh, which has tends to lengthen. I'm in a season of life where God is kindly exposing my need for growth in humility. And the Philippians found themselves in the same position. God kindly sent encouragement to, to them via the words of Paul. Suffering had exposed weakness within them, as it does with many churches. The Philippians have, had been suffering, and the weakness that was exposed was pride and a lack of humility. And their unity was in danger. And so Paul knows of this danger, and he warmly writes to his friends. In Paul's mind, corporate unity through personal humility is of the highest priority. Paul has in mind a specific type of unity. He calls it being of the same mind. And he has mentioned the idea already in chapter 1, verse 27, where he says, with one mind striving side by side for faith, for the faith of the gospel. Oneness of mind is a particular challenge for groups of humans because we all have individual centers of thought that differ based on experience, age, gender, education, and desires. We're very different from one another. So think about it. Paul is saying that a socioeconomic and culturally diverse group of people should be unified or of the same mind while being persecuted and suffering. He knows that this notion is one that is needing both explanation and motivation. And so this morning, we'll first look at what, what is corporate unity through personal humility in verses 3 through 4. And then we will talk about what motivates it in verses 1 and 2. Then we will look at the one who personifies personifies it in verses 5 through 11. And so you'll notice that I'll do verses 3 and 4. 
and then verses 1 and 2, and then verses 5 through 11. So there'll be a little break in the order there, but I think that's necessary for us to identify what is corporate unity through personal humility, and then talk about its motivation, and then talk about the one that personifies it. So Paul knows that his audience will naturally and intuitively, or will not naturally and intuitively understand the type of unity that he is advocating, because you don't see it anywhere. It doesn't naturally occur. So he gives a a cocktail of positive and negative commands and criteria in order to express a reality that most humans have not experienced corporate unity through personal humility. So, look with me at verse 2 where Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. So here Paul encourages the Philippian church about what they should be. They should function as a group of people who are unified by what they set their minds on where they point their affections, and how their souls, though many, are one. He is talking about a unity of mind, heart, and soul. A unity that is worthy of the gospel and shows the gospel to the larger Philippian community. Paul is insisting on a oneness that can only be given by God because it is reflective of his character. Three persons, one essence. It's reflective of his character. Paul is pressing for a oneness of mind, activity, mission, affection, and concern. In 1969, um, some of you may remember this, in 1969, the United States had a goal. And that summer, they wanted to put a man on the moon. And so, uh, in Houston, at the Space Center there, uh, there was lots and lots and lots of activity. And so uh, they were preparing, kind of building up to this launch. And um, as they were doing that, there was a lot of camera crews there, and they were recording everything. And and so one day they kind of had a a break in activity, and so they decided to get some B-film, kind of recording stuff here and there, interviewing people here and there. And they see a janitor coming down the hallway, and they figure, hey, why don't we get an interview with this guy? So the guy's coming down the hallway, and there's the camera crew, and they stop the guy, and they say, hey, what's your job here? He stops, and he kind of leans up on his mop, and he says, my job is to help put a man on the moon. This man understood the mission of NASA at that point so much and believed in He knows that even though his audience loves and walks with Christ, they still struggle with self. It is our disposition to put ourselves at the center of our decision-making and interaction with others. It's what we do naturally. Even our humility can be self-serving, or the veneer of humility can be self-serving. So one way to measure this is to ask ourselves, who is the most important person in the rooms that you occupy. So in the rooms that you go into day to day, who's the most important person? The classroom. Who's the most important person? The living room, the bedroom, the boardroom, the cubicle, the job site, the coffee shop, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Who is the most important person in that room? Do you think of yourself as the most important person in that room? Or better yet, let me turn it on you. Because I guarantee none of you would say to me, I'm the most important person in that room. You, you know better than that. You're a good Christian, or you at least know church stuff well enough to say, I shouldn't do that. Or even our culture would say, well, you shouldn't puff yourself up and be the most important person in the room. But let me ask you this. Who's the least important person in the room? Who's the least important person in the rooms that you occupy? This passage tells us that I am the least important person in every room that I enter I am not second, I am not third, I am not fourth, I am least. Because if I put everyone's interest above mine, then my interests get shuffled to the bottom, and I become least important, and everyone else becomes most important. So what does it look like for you to become the least 
important person in the room and to put others first? And, and what would it look like for you to view others as more important than yourselves? And what would it look like for you to look also to the interest of others? These are questions that we have to ask and answer personally. I can't tell you that because you know yourself. And you have to ask yourself these questions. So what would it look like for you to do nothing out of conceit or selfish ambition? So let's take a test. Are you more interested in speaking about yourself rather than asking others about themselves? When you have conversations, do you use the word I very, very often? I do this, and 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 I do this. Or do you ask people, what do you do? What do you care about? How is your life? How are things going with you? What are you up to? How can I serve you? You can judge what you're focused on by whether or not you use I or you. What would it look like for you to, to live a life of humility? Let's continue our test. So imagine the gospel conversations you could have if you would make a practice of asking others about themselves. I was at uh, breakfast this morning. Um, I went to Bob Evans. I'd never been to Bob Evans before. Went and I sat down and a lady comes up and I uh, get coffee and tell her what I want, and she brings my food, and when she brings my food, uh, her name's Jenny. Jenny comes up, and I said, Jenny, I'm going to pray for my food. Can I pray for you? Um, and, her, and her head kind of fell a little bit, and she said, yes, please. And I said, what specifically can I pray for? And before I could get the words out of my mouth, she said, Kyle. And I said, how can I pray for him? She said, he's my son. He has leukemia. And uh, uh, it was, it was as if she couldn't wait to ask for someone to pray for her son. And so my hand was on the table, and she put her kind of warm, clammy hand on my hand and said, thank you. And she walked, she, as quickly as she could, she kind of shuffled away. And so because God was kind to me and gracious to me in a moment and gave me enough sense, probably because I was looking over my notes for this sermon, gave me enough sense to think of someone else other than myself, and because I was willing to ask her how I could pray for her, um, she felt cared for. She felt as if there was some type of hope. Um, and she thanked me two or three times for just asking her if I could pray for her. And so I want to do something. I want to pass the torch to you. Her name is Jenny. She works at Bob Evans. I know she's there at least on Sunday mornings. You should go and you should sit in her section. You, could ask, you should ask her if you can pray for her. You should get to know about her son, Kyle. You should find out where he is. You, could see, you should see if you can visit him. You should enter into her life in a way that makes her more important, that she might be drawn into the care of Christ. When we make others more important than ourselves, the gospel has soil that it falls into, and it might grow up from that. And so if we prioritize other people, the gospel will make sense. The gospel will go forth into the broader community. But as we make, if we make ourselves the center, there, there will be no soil for, for that seed to fall on. So does your calendar look like that of someone who counts others more important? Does your calendar have you and yours at the center of it? So if I were to look at your phone and, and look at what you schedule, are you at the center of that? Is your family your kind of nucleus, stuff that you like to do is at the center of that. You orient all the things you do about the things that you think are best for you and your family. Or are there other people out there that you're making more important? So imagine what God would do if you positioned him and his people at the center of your calendar. If you positioned his mission, his global and local mission at the, at the center of your calendar, what would he do? So when you look at your bank account online, does it look like one that looks also to the interest of others? Or does it look only to your interests? Are you seeking out ways to be generous towards God locally and globally? Because we give to God and then he uses those things to do what he wants to accomplish. Are you doing that? Does your, your, does your bank account reflect that? Does your checkbook, if, any, if anyone still has one of those, does it reflect that? So would those around you consider you, we're still taking a test here, would those around you consider you humble? 
with your classmates or your professors or your employees, your, your employer, your friends, your teammates, or your family? Would your kids say that you're humble? Because they'll tell out like it is. Would your kids say that you're humble? Would humility be the first descriptor giving, given about you at your funeral? So when you go into the ground, the guy gets up to talk about you, is he going to have to make stuff up? Because that's what happens at funerals. People make stuff up about people. Or will humility, gentleness, kindness, faithfulness, will humility be the thing that naturally comes out of the mouth of the person that's eulogizing you? When they say something good about you, will it be true? And will humility be, be a part of that? So Paul is placing humility at the center of Christian life, and yet we seldom hear sermons on it. Nor are there many books concerning humility in the Christian life. I did a search of christianbooks.com. I searched success. I found 2,471 books on success or being successful or having a successful Christian life. I searched humility. I found 415. In the Bible, humility is mentioned more than speaking in tongues, just as, just as often as baptism, more than the Lord's Supper, more than predestined election and free will combined. And depending on who wrote the book of Hebrews, all but two New Testament writers use the word, but they all clearly discuss the idea. Humility is everywhere in the scriptures. Yet, we shuffle it away to the closets of our Christian lives. Because when we hear sermons on humility, we are crushed by them. And we should be. So, Will you make humility a personal pursuit? Will you press in and study God's word concerning humility and pride? Will you expose yourself to others in accountability? Will you repent and ask for forgiveness as a way to begin pursuing pride? So verses 2, 3, and 4 give us no uncertain description of corporate unity through personal humility. And now that we know what it is, now that we can identify it, now that we see it, let's look at some motivations to walk in it. So in verse 1, Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. It's as if Paul is laying out a checklist of Christian experience. And he he highlights five areas that the Philippians would have surely experienced and could not deny. It would be like me asking you this morning, Have you ever been encouraged by your relationship with Christ? Or have you ever been comforted by God's love? Or have you ever experienced the nearness and activity of the Holy Spirit? Or have you ever received affection and sympathy in your Christian life? So uh, if I ask you this morning, what would you say? Now, if we were a culturally different community, we'd all be saying, amen, 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 amen. But we don't do that in our culture most of the time. But your heart right now is saying, amen. I've experienced all those things. And so what Paul is doing is laying out a checklist that every single Christian, everyone who has the Spirit, everyone who knows Christ would say, yes. It's an undeniable reality for Christians. He's asking them to reflect on all that they have received through their union and relationship with God. And he's asking them to consider how lavish has he been to them. By saying, so if there is to things that cannot be not denied, he's actually saying in a very persuasive way, he's saying, therefore, since there is. So therefore, since there is encouragement. Therefore, since there is sympathy. And so he is showing that there is no argument that can be made against the request he's about to make to them. So he's doing something to set them up so that they can't make any argument against him. And their, their only response to his call to humility is yes. So, since there is all these things, since you have received so much, make my joy complete by walking in humility. And you can't deny him that because you have received all these things. So, I could say to you this morning with Paul, therefore, since there is so much encouragement in Christ and so much comfort from love, and so much participation in the Spirit, and so much affection and sympathy, pursue corporate unity through humility. You're only left with that response. You cannot argue with that. You know by the Spirit that you should do that. And so my pastor says that there are two ways to humble a man. You can beat him down, or you can love him down. 
And what more could God do to humble us in love? When we, ref- when we reflect on God's love and comfort and encouragement and sympathy and affection and nearness, we are left with only one response, and that response is humility. That's the only thing that we can respond with. Humble thankfulness as one who has received. And so theological thankfulness, a thankfulness to God about who he is, extinguishes pride and motivates corporate unity through personal humility. When we reflect on God and are thankful for who he is and what he does to us, our only response is humility that breeds corporate unity. So we should be people who reflect on God's kindness to us privately and publicly. And so would you, would you daily pursue thankfulness before God? Not simply for what he gives, but for who he is. Just saying thank you, God, for who you are. So how should you pursue this as a church body? And how will you be reflective and thankful? How will you make that a priority? It may be that you do that in your corporate services. It may be that you do that in your weekly meetings. But how will you make that a priority to be thankful in a way that extinguishes pride? Not like the tax collector that says, God, thank you that I'm not like that sinner. But one that says, thank you for showing mercy to me, a sinner. Thankfulness towards God. So joy is the second motivation of corporate unity through personal humility. It could be said that reflective thankfulness is the fuel of corporate unity through personal humility. And it it could then be said that joy is the outcome. So, if this church, if you personally pursue humility... And everybody does that. This church will be unified, and the net effect will be joy for all of you. So no one here doesn't want joy. Paul's saying, make my joy complete by being unified. Paul says in verse 2, to complete his joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul is consumed by love for the church, and he wants nothing more than to see it be and remain healthy. And unity is a distinguishing mark of a healthy church. The moment this church becomes disunified, it will be lack of health taking root and showing fruit. Unity is a distinguishing mark of a healthy local church. Paul desires this health and unity so much that he can say that nothing would give him more and complete joy than for the Philippians to walk in unity. And so, if church health and unity is joy completing for Paul, we should conclude that it is also, it also should be our joyful priority. So joy is at stake when the church is fractured. And a divided church is not a joyful church. Church unity is joy-infusing. You've experienced that. When you all walk in accord with one another, there's joy in that, and you share that joy. And so now you call people into that joy to share that joy with them like a family. And so hopefully one day, Jenny will be sitting right here in joyful unity with you all because the gospel reaches her. Because of some simple thing that God asks some simple person to do. And we were just simply obedient to that. We're calling people into that type of joy with us through the gospel. In our day, churches do not divide over doctrinal differences, but they divide over personal preferences. And that's what will end up dividing many, many, many churches in our midst. And so sometimes that means that a group of people separate and starts another church because of personal preference. But sometimes that means that a member goes to another church because of personal preferences. And one is a fracturing in half. The other is a fracturing in bits. And so, will you fight for corporate unity starting with you? putting your personal preferences aside. There are going to be things within this church that you don't love. 
because of personal preference. And you have to table those for corporate unity. To pursue unity in the way that Paul is calling us to. You take your desires and the desire for your desires and needs to be met, and you table those for greater desires, for a pursuit of joy. So we've seen two great motivators in corporate unity, or two corporate unity through personal humility. First is our personal, undeniable experience of love, compassion, nearness, and affection, sympathy of God in Christ by the Spirit. Then, secondly, we've seen joy is the outcome of humble church unity. Sermons on humility are hard. They can be a bit like this. A bit overwhelming. My children's bedroom looks like this most days. It's overwhelming. It's disordered. Personal humility can, can be a bit overwhelming because as you sit under the preaching of God's word, you are pressed. It can be disorienting because you see so much work that has to be done in you and you're pressed under the weight of it. It can, it can feel a bit like trying to, to build a, a Lego model of the Eiffel Tower in the dark. It's going to be a challenge. It's going to be hard. And so, though I know what Legos are, and I know what the Eiffel Tower is, I'm not sure how to get my pile of Legos, my mess, my pride, I'm not sure how to build that into something that looks like the Eiffel Tower. I really don't know where to start. Usually when I'm going to make something, like if there's a thing I have to assemble, what I do is I look at the box. I'm like, okay, what does it look like? All right? That goes there, and that goes there, and that goes there. I usually don't read the directions. That's a fault of mine. But I usually look at the box. I want to see what the thing looks like. And so, we need help. I'm not sure how to get this to look like the Eiffel Tower. I can barely even see my Legos. I'm fumbling in the dark, and I need help. And I need something to imitate, a prototype. I need to know why I should even be building a tower. And so Paul has just thrown all these Legos on the floor for us. And he's saying, get to work building your tower, the tower of personal humility that leads to corporate unity. That's what he's saying. Get to work building this thing. Start working on you that corporate unity might come out of that. He even told us how to build it. But the tower of corporate unity through personal humility will not be built through know-how. It is not simply a practical endeavor. Because the tower we, we are being asked to build can only be seen in Christ. We must behold him and his life in order to truly embark on the endeavor of humility. His life sheds light on the messy pile of Legos that is our life and our life together. And he is our model. He is our prototype. We have to look at him and see him. Likewise, his purpose has to be our purpose. The end of his humility has to be the end of ours. It has to be our end. And so in verses 5 through 11, we'll see the prototype and purpose of Christ's personal humility. So in verse 5, Paul says, Have, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ. So in saying this, Paul is changing gears within the discussion. He's told us, the he's told the Philippians about how to pursue personal humility, but here he begins to roll out its source. All right, so he's told them what it is, but now he's going to show the source of it. And this could be compared to the difference between telling someone how to drink water and telling somewhere, someone where to get water. All right? So if I was telling you how to drink water, I would say, put the cup to your mouth and drink some. But if I asked you where do I get it, that's a completely different thing. And so now he's moving on to say, okay, this humility that I've been talking to you about, where do you get it? How do you lay hold of it? How do you receive it? And so now he begins moving us towards the, the person 
of humility. He introduces a humility of mind that is alien to the Philippians, alien to us. And, and it's not in them, but they have access to it. So much so that he can say, it is theirs. They have possession of it. This is significant because the kind of humility that he is about to hold up before them cannot be produced in and of themselves. And so this morning, I'm not asking you to get busy in and of yourself. Paul is not saying that. He's asking something completely different. Christ is their only hope for life, for the life that he is calling them to. And the same is true for us. And so Paul is unraveling the mystery of how a group of minds can have one mind. It is to, to be subject to and pursue the mind or way of thinking of Christ, the, the mind that he had and the mind that he has now. As a teenager, I had the privilege of watching Michael Jordan play basketball. Michael Jordan is considered to be the greatest basketball player of all time. There are, there are few people that could be said to have defined a sport in terms of success. Michael Jordan had one college national championship with the University of North Carolina, of which he hit the, win, the game-winning shot with 16 seconds left in a game. He holds six NBA World Championships, two Olympic gold medals. He led the NBA in steals three times. He led the NBA in scoring ten times. He was the Rookie of the Year, Defensive Player of the Year once. He played in 14 All-Star games, and when the game was on the line, he shot 50%, which is better than his shooting average when the game was not on the line. Just for reference, Kobe Bryant is at about 30%. Uh, Michael Jordan defined success in basketball. All this to say he was pretty good. And if you were going to learn how to play basketball, would it be better to read a book about how basketballs are made? Or would it be better to spend time learning and playing with Michael Jordan? Which one would you want? Reading the book, getting the idea, or spending time with Michael Jordan, who embodies and defines basketball? Likewise, the type of humility that Paul is calling to, the one he has in mind, is not going to be the result of simply understanding what humility is. I, I suspect that's why he does not continue his practical instruction on humble living. But he transitions, and he quickly in introduces the one who defines and embodies humility. So humility is not simply the pursuit of a character trait, but the pursuit of a person. Many times, we think learning about humility, learning practical tips about humility, is going to change us. Humility is not a pursuit of a character trait. It is the pursuit of a person, and his name is Jesus. You need to pursue him, and that's what Paul is calling us to, a pursuit of Christ. And so then he begins to roll out who is this person? In verse 6, he, he describes the contours of, humili of the humility of Christ. And here he begins, uh, we begin to see the dim outline of, of humility become clear. So the, this kind of fuzzy idea we have about humility, kind of this right here. We've got parts and pieces and we can see some stuff and we know what these things are. But, but, but really, what is it? How does it work together? He begins to show that by explaining Christ. And he says, in verse 6, Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He begins to unfold who is Jesus in very specific terms. I have a, I've fathered five children over the last ten years, and I've learned one thing for sure. Children have extraordinarily strong hands. So uh, it's as if God gave them this kind of extraordinary gift uh, uh, this grip to keep other children from wrenching things away from them. And so my daughter, uh, I had my first daughter uh, a few years ago. Uh, she's my fourth, and she's two now. She weighs about 30 pounds or so. And it's next to impossible to get something out of her hand. If you have children, you know that. Like, they've got something in their hand. You're like, why is your hand so strong? Like, my hand is five times the size of yours. Why can't I get this thing out of your hand? 
And so her grip reveals a heart that's unwilling to let go of what she thinks is rightfully hers. Jesus is not like my daughter Johanna. Because, Paul says in verse 6, that Jesus did not hold on to or cling to or grasp on to what was rightfully his. His equality with God. And he was willing to let it go. He was willing to let go of what was rightfully his. When he says Jesus did not count or consider equality with God something to be grasped, he is letting us in on the mind or thought process of Christ. His humble action took root in the soil of humble thinking. This is the mind of Christ. Humble consideration. Thinking goes before action. So look with me back in verse 3 where Paul says, Consider others more important than yourself. He is using a similar word as in verse 6. And Paul is showing that Christ, like humility, first thinks or counts. Consider and count, those are the same word. He's saying first consider or count others more important than yourselves and then act on that. And so all humility comes out of a consideration of others. You will not naturally do it in action. You have to set your mind to consider others better than yourself like Christ did. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be held on to, but in consideration of others, he let go of it. We cannot miss what Christ willingly let go of. He let go of the position that he eternally shared with God in relationship. Equality. Christ-like humility does not cling on to status or position, but is willing to step down. Humility is a staircase, not an escalator. Humble living is step-by-step, grace-saturated, purposeful pursuit of others' interests, and there is no easy way down. You are not going to get on the escalator of humility and just descend into humility. You are going to have to step down and step down and step down and step down, and it's going to be hard every step of the way, just like it was for Christ. Though... He is God. He does not cling on to that high exalted position that he had. He lets go of that and steps into humanity. There is no easy way down. And it will hurt. Humility will hurt. I promise you that. And Paul further explains what it means that Christ did not grasp onto equality with God by saying in verse 7, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. In English, uh, we have a saying that really illustrates the opposite of what Paul's up to here, what Paul is describing. Uh, And it can be said like this, that a guy is really full of himself, meaning that he's very prideful. But in this verse, it explains that the one who had no ill qualities to empty himself of willingly poured himself out by taking the position of a servant or a slave. He emptied himself and took on the position of a slave. The way that Christ, the way that Christ expresses humility is not by becoming something less than God, but by adding on or taking on a lower position in nature. The way that Christ took on this was by being born in the, like, in the likeness of men or, or by taking on flesh. So what we celebrate at Christmas is Christ humbly entering into not just the world, but into humanity as God, taking on flesh, condescending. And the depth of humility revealed in its action is not readily transparent to us, and I think that is because we don't think that we are all that different from God. We don't understand how far Christ came. And so Paul is painting a picture to the Philippian church, one of a sovereign king removing his magisterial adornments and putting on the garb of a servant and stepping down into humanity. And the step down that we see here is steep. 
The one who was everything, the one who is everything, makes himself nothing. The one who is everything becomes nothing. The king becomes the slave. The creator becomes a worm. His step, the step down that he takes is hard for us to comprehend because we don't understand how different we are from God. In verse 8 he says, And being found in the form, in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so, so Christ's personal humility had no limits. There was nothing he was too good to endure for the sake of humble obedience. Nothing was, was off the table for him. He would do anything in obedience to his Father. And so Jesus' humility was self-imposed. In this way, Christ's humility is altogether different than any of our own. Our humility will be and is rooted in repentance from thinking first of our own glory and good. And our humility is a moving from disobedience to obedience. But Christ's humility should be seen in terms of increased obedience. Christ's humility is most clearly seen in the fact that he never disobeyed God. It's increased obedience for Christ. That his humility just extends further and further and further with more challenges. That he just shows who he is, the Son of God, in his continued obedience to his Father. That's how his humility is expressed. The last step in Paul's explanation of Christ's descent of humble obedience is simply summarized. Even death on a cross. Now as people who've grown up in the church, we become very um, comfortable with the cross. We become very knowledgeable of the cross. And it's hard for us to understand the grossness and the depths of the cross. But one can scarcely think of something worse. And, and, the, and the valley of Christ's humility is the pinnacle of shame. The most shameful thing someone can think of. One can scarcely think of a more embarrassing way to die than, than crucifixion. And, and not to mention Christ's own crucifixion. Because remember, he was an innocent man falsely tried. Then, Stripped by the governor's guards, wrapped in a mock robe and given a faux crown, he's belittled and beaten. Then he's reclothed, beaten again, turned over to a state-sanctioned mob, stripped again, robbed of his clothing, nailed through in his hands and feet, mocked by passerbys, religious leaders, and crucified criminals, then forsaken by God. There is no lower place on earthly existence No moment of history lower than Christ's death on the cross. That's as low as it gets. There is no lower place Christ can go. He goes all the way down. He walks all the way down. Willing to do whatever his father asks him to in humble obedience. He pursued that place and time in humble obedience to his father. And Christ has given us an example of humility that God intends us to follow. God wholeheartedly intends you to, to follow the example of Christ. He wholeheartedly intends that for you. You cannot say, oh, no, 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 but, but that was Jesus. He was God. You cannot say that because Paul is holding Christ up before us as the prototype of personal humility that leads to corporate unity. This is a real command. This is a real example that we are intended to follow. So how about you and how, how about me? Where won't you go in servant-hearted, humble obedience? Where's the place you say, I will not go there? For me, it's India. And I have to deal with that. I don't want to go to India. I don't want to live in India. Nothing in me wants to live in India. I don't know why. I just don't. But I have to deal with that. Why wouldn't I do that? What act of service is too low for you? What thing will you just not do? It's just off the table. Not doing that. I'll do anything but that. Who won't you serve? Who will you not serve in Christ-like humility? What people? What types of people? What person is just off the table? I'll serve anybody. I'm just not going to serve them. So, so 
Who will you not serve? What obedience to God are you too good for or are you too proud for? What obedience does God hold out before you and you say, no, not going to do that. I'll do anything else but that. Because for Christ, there was none of that. You remember he says to his father, if there's any way in John, if there's any way that this cup can pass by me, the cup of suffering on the cross under the wrath of God, if there's any way that this cup can pass me by, let it happen. But not my will, but your will be done, for this is the purpose for which I came. He's ever focused on humility in obedience to the Father, even to the last moment, knowing the agony of the cross, but he goes to it because nothing is too good for Christ in humble obedience to his Father. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him because of this obedience, because of his submission and humility. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Paul says that because of all that has been said in verses 6 through 8, God has lifted his eternal son up to the highest position that can be had and has given him the name that is There is no greater name than this one that he gives him. Here we see that the the once exalted king has been returned to his rightful place, and we see that, that his going to the lowest place resulted in him being raised up to the highest place. We see that the one that was once called servant has a name so high that it can only be described by the fact that all other names are under it. Emperor, president, czar. Khan, all of those names, those titles are under Christ. There is no name, there is no position greater than that of Christ. And he's, ex- he's been re-exalted to that place, because remember, that's from where he came. In verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord And in two simple words, so that, Paul gives us a glimpse into the mind and motivation of God. God highly exalted Christ and gave him a name, an incomparable name, so that one day every person in the world, everyone who has ever existed, will kneel in humble submission and confession to Christ the King. That's a coming reality that will happen. And what fascinates me about verse 9 and 10 is that Jesus does not exalt himself, He does not take his rightful position. He is the humble recipient of it. In the same way that he did not cling on to what was his by nature, he also did not take back what was his by virtue. It was bestowed on him. It was given to him. Likewise, the future submission of all to him is not his doing, but something someone is doing for him. Remember the Father, so that everyone would bow before him. It is the outcome of his elevation to the highest place. Jesus still occupies a position of humility even in his exaltation. We can see that at every step, Christ's humble way of thinking resulted in humble action, even in his exaltation. And so Christ humbly let go of equality with God and came in the flesh. Christ humbly served others while on earth. Christ humbly obeyed God even to death on the cross. Christ remained humble even in his his being raised up to the highest place and given the highest name. This is the mind we should have, can have, and do have in Christ. This is what we have, that type of attitude that motivates that type of living. We have that in Christ, Paul tells us our mind in Christ. And so, Christ even remains humble. He will remain humble. On that day, all bow down and confess to him in lordship because, as the end of verse 11 tells us, all this will be done to the glory of God the Father. So imagine with me for a moment. Christ the King is standing, all bowed heads before him. Every person that has ever lived is bowing before him. And as his ears hear the chorus of confession that he truly is Lord, he will divert all glory and point at him, God the Father. He will divert that glory 
and say no, no, no to God the Father. That is the, the essence of humility. Not like a football player uh, praying in the end zone, not like a baseball player pointing at the sky as he passes home plate, not like an actor who wants to thank God as he receives accolades. No, but as one who truly deserves glory and honor and praise, but humility in humility diverts it to another. Glory to God the Father is not an add-on for Jesus. It is the point. He lives to glorify the Father. And we see this in his earthly ministry. He's always pointing to the Father, always pointing back to the Father, living to glorify his Father. So the apostle has taken the long way to say one thing very clear. He's given us 11 verses to say one thing very clear. Corporate unity through personal humility is the result of pursuing Christ, our humble, exemplary, obedient, Father-glorifying servant king. God expects you to pursue Christ in humility, to be like him. And so how do we do that? One, become a slave of Christ. If you sit here today and you are not a follower of Christ, you need to be saved from God, by God, to God, for his purposes. From God, by God, to God, for God. In slavery to him. Give your life to Christ. If you want to talk more about that afterwards, please come and speak to me. I would love to talk to you about that. Any week, at any time, you can call Matt or any of the other leaders here and talk to them about that. As Christ is working in you, respond to him. Second, consider others more significant than yourself. Think the way you ought to think. And when you don't, ask God to make you think that way. Make your thinking like Christ. Make you like Christ. Ask him to do that. Three, joyfully serve others. Find someone and serve them. Start in your home and then work outside of your home into the local church and work your way outside of that into the broader community. Joyfully serve others. Four, humbly obey God. Obey God in new ways. Pick one thing and humbly do it as Christ would. Something simple. Pick a new obedience, something you've never been obedient in before. Find that thing and do it in humble obedience to God as expression of your humility. So as we reflect back on our pile of Legos and the overwhelming command to build something together, but now we have a prototype, right? We know what we're, what we're working towards. We see Christ. We understand him at some level. We see how we are to live, that he is our example. And we see that we have access to his mind and motivation. And we also know that this monument that we're supposed to build, corporate unity through personal humility, is not a monument to us or even to this church, but like Christ, it's to the glory of the Father. This thing we're supposed to build together is for God's glory, not for this church's glory, not for your glory. So the question is this. Will you humble yourself and step down into the mess, right? The mess that we have with each other, the relational messes, the problems, your preferences. Because that's what all this is, right? And how do we pick that up and start building something? humbly together begin building corporate unity through personal humility that's a monument to our king to christ for the glory of god the father in humble submission to him so as we spend time singing and reflecting i want you to think about what is that thing that's keeping you from doing that what's too good for you i've asked you about a hundred questions in this sermon Nobody gets away in this one. Nobody gets off in this one. You have something to do business about. You have business to do together. And you've got to build something together in humility, putting aside your preferences and getting to work that God will be glorified in the corporate unity that you accomplish in personal humility. Will you pray with me? Father, we... 
we ask that you would just humble us. Uh, that's a dangerous prayer. Um, I know I, I've been humbled by you before, and I don't, I don't want it, but I love it. And so, God, I pray that you would shave away those areas in my life that are rebellion to you, that are disobedience to you, that, that have grown up in the soil of pride that I've let remain. Pray, God, that you would make me something like Christ, that my imitation of him would result in corporate unity with my own body and even uh, the larger universal body of Christ. I pray, God, that, um, that nothing would be too good for me because nothing was too good for Christ in obedience to you. I pray for this church that it would be one as a monument to your greatness, to your name, God, that others see and say, wow, how do those people live in that type of unity? And the answer would be because of the example of Christ made alive in us by the Spirit that we might glorify you, Father. So we bow the knee now to our servant king and commit to walking in humility by the power of the Spirit for your name's sake. And we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.